0: Good morning, uh, as Brennan said, I'm Ben, I am the pastor of multiplication and networking here at Grace Point, it's an honor to be able to continue our Daniel series this morning, we'll be in Daniel 4. Um, before we get there, I, I don't know how many of you guys, but myself personally, I, I really love to golf. Um, golfing has been something that's been a part of my life since I was in elementary school, from when my dad would take me, he bought me in my own set of clubs and he would take me out to this par 3 course called Memorial in Huron, and he would drop me off before work, and then on his lunch break home, he would pick me up, uh, and I just learned to golf, and I learned to just hack it around and swing as hard as I can, because that's what I wanted to do as a, as a 10-year-old, um, was try to hit the ball just as stinking hard as I could. And so I learned that, and so I've been golfing my whole life, did, did team golf in high school, uh, in college, golfed a ton, got married, had kids, golf lessened a little bit, but I'm so passionate about it, I love to do it. And I say that because golf for some reason and being on the golf course are some, I have some of the most humbling moments and experiences I can have as a human being. If you know golf, if you've been golfing, you know this, this is true. Um, I, I, again, I really like golf. I'm not great at it by any means, but I can tend to hit the ball really far sometimes. Uh, in Watertown, uh, a course up there called Cattail Crossings, there's about three drivable par fours. And what that means is that these three holes are anywhere from like 280 yards to 320 yards. And sometimes on a good day, I can drive that far and hit the hole in one shot. And so when, when we get to these holes that I think are drivable, there's a couple here in Brookings, if the wind's right, we can get it, but that's a different thing. Where if I'm golfing with some, with some friends and there's people that are in front of us, I will, in pride, because I can hit the ball far sometimes, say, I'm just going to wait to hit because I don't want to hurt them. The reality is like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit them because I'm this good at golf. Like, that's what I think in my head. So we wait, right? Everyone else drives. Everyone else hits their ball. And we wait, and I'm waiting for them to get off the, get, get off the green. And I go, and I get ready, and, and, I, and I get in my stance. The ball is down. I am, I am as confident as I could be. And I get ready. And without fail, more often than not, I go back, and I swing, and it's a chunk. And I hit it 10 feet. And I duck hook it left, or I slice it in the way right, or I hit it up in the air, and it's the worst drive of the entire god people I'm golfing with. And it's really humbling because I ask them to wait. I said we're just going to wait until these people get off. Or if I'm in a tournament and I'm on a scramble team, it's like you get up to hole one and there's a bunch of people just watching, right? And sometimes it's nerves, but because I tend to be a prideful person in my arrogance, like I'm going to be like I'm going to show them how far I can hit this stinking ball. And so, like, in that, I get up, and these people are watching, I'm excited, and I'm thinking more about what they think of my shot in my golf game than what I'm supposed to do. Same thing. Duck hook it left. Chunk it right. Being on the golf course, as much as I love it, has brought me some of the most humiliating, humbling moments as a human being. And I say that because when we enter into Daniel 4, what we get is the story of a king who writes a letter to his enti- the, all of the people that he oversees. His entire dominion, the people he rules in every nation, tongue, wherever they're at. He who, the King Nebuchadnezzar, whom he oversees, he writes this letter in Daniel 4. This is him, his story. And this story that he wants to tell all of the people that serve him, all of the people that are underneath him, is a story of humility. He doesn't pick the one where he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego literally get saved from a fire. He picks a story of humiliation, but it's a story of God bringing him to a spot, into a moment, of humbling himself to do the one thing that God desires to do all throughout not just the book of Daniel, but our life. And it's to be acknowledged. And so we're going to open up Daniel 4. I'm going to summarize a few passages. We'll actually read a few more from scripture. But as we open it, what we see, and here's why we know it's a letter written from him, he starts it off with his name, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the nations and tongues. And he actually uses this opening in this letter to give glory and honor to the Most High God. He says this in verse 8, it's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. He says, how great are his signs, mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. So he is giving praise, honor, and glory. He's worshiping the God Most High, the God who saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, I'm writing this letter to you to let you know what he's done in my life. And so in verse 4, he says, I was sitting in my palace, and I was laying in my bed, and I had these dreams and these visions. And these dreams and these visions, he says, they terrified me. So I got together, all the magicians and and the wise men of Babylon, and, and I gathered them together that they would be able to interpret the dream and the visions that I had. And he got them all together, right? Second dream that we've encountered in Daniel 4 from for King Nebuchadnezzar. And none of these Babylonian magicians and wise men could interpret the dream again. And then in verse 8, it says, finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him my dream. He says, Daniel, like, this is, this is my dream. Here it is, interpret it for me. And so we pick up in verse 10, King Nebuchadnezzar then lays out the dream for Daniel. He said, These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with, an an, with animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowest of people. He says, this is the dream that I had. Daniel, will you interpret it for me? In this story, what we're going to find is that, and this is really cheesy, but I love it. God moves us from I and me to him and he. That is the big idea here. In the moments where we are proud, we use this language continually over. It's all about I, it's all about me, what I have done, what I'm going to do, what I have. And you see this story. And the story that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of a massive kingdom, decided to share with all his people is a story of his own humiliation, of God moving his I and me to him and he. And so, Daniel, here's the vision, filled with the Spirit a prophet of God, is going to interpret. But he, before he gets to the moment where he gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation, he struggles with it. He's stressed out about it. And I think there are two forms of thought a little bit for, for Daniel. One, there's one idea of, I don't know how this king is going to respond when I tell him the interpretation of the dream and the visions. Because what he's done before is thrown my friends in a fire. So what's he going to do now? But also, when you're following Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, when you spend enough time with people, maybe even no matter how evil or wrong they are, you actually start caring for them. I think there's an aspect here in Daniel where he's so stressed to give the interpretation to to King Nebuchadnezzar that he he's not afraid, some maybe it's yeah, afraid of what he how he's gonna respond, but he feels bad giving him the news that he's about to give him. Because I think he legitimately cares for him. Like, he, he gave him a name, and, and, and it can be argued, it, it is a slave name, but in verse, man, where is it? I think it's in, yeah, in verse 8, or verse 9. No, verse 8. It said, finally Daniel came to my presence, I told him the dream. And it says, Daniel is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods that's in it. So like, King Nebuchadnezzar renames Daniel... Some theologians think it's a slave and servant name. Some think it's a name of honor because it's literally the name of a God that Nebuchadnezzar would serve, saying, like, there's something about you that, like, God is in you. And so I think there's this friendship here where Daniel is afraid to say, like, here's actually what it is. But because Daniel's obedient, because he loves Jesus, because he wants to acknowledge God more than anything else, he gives the interpretation. So there's this big, enormous, mighty, powerful tree. And Daniel says, I wish the tree were your adversaries, but the tree is you. You are the tree. It's big and, and, and strong. He says your greatness is vast, but it's going to be cut down. It's going to be taken away. The things that you have that you're able to provide and, and protection, food, shelter for your kingdom are going to be stripped from you. And not only that, not only is all the things that you possess and oversee going to be taken from you, you are going to be driven out into the wild, given the mind of an animal to wander alone, going to be cut down. But the messenger says, but leave the stump and the roots. And Daniel says in verse 26, to leave the stump and the roots means that your kingdom, he's telling us the kingdom of Israel, your kingdom will be restored. When you acknowledge that heaven rule, this is the story, what we're going to get into next, that Nebuchadnezzar desired for his entire kingdom to hear. It's his own downfall. The issue with Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that he had this great kingdom, wasn't that he was overseeing and ruling all these things, wasn't that he had success in life. It's that in the success, he decided not to acknowledge the one true God who is the author of said success, who is the giver of the good things that were there, who gives over kingdoms to anyone he deems necessary, not worthy, necessary, to fulfill his plan and his purpose. So success is not the bad thing. It's all throughout Daniel. What we're going to continue to run to is this reality where King Nebuchadnezzar did not acknowledge that heaven ruled. That what he had and what he'd been given was authored by God. What we'll go through is I think three just basic steps of what it looks like when God basically makes humble the prideful. And so the first step is this is the king is high and mighty. So we jump down to verse 29, and what we're gonna see here is how the king, in his own pridefulness, in his own selfishness, makes himself high and mighty. Verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The king is high and mighty. Everything he has, he he grasps and owns and is in control of and has dominion over because of his power for what? His majesty. A lot of eye language. A lot of me language. It's all about him, what he's done. Belief that he did it all. He's the reason for his success. His pride. He's standing over. He's on the roof of a mighty, massive palace, and he sees everything he owns, and he can't even see actually everything he owns. But he knows what he has dominion over, what he's been given authority over. He says, "Look what I've done. Look what I've done." That's pride. A couple years ago, we went through a a sermon series about the vices and virtues, the seven deadly sins. And Pastor Steve Norby defined pride as this. So pride is the swelling of the heart filled with self-importance and a desire to be more than we were created to be. So it's a swelling of the heart and the swelling of the heart, that's not the bad thing. What's bad is when the swelling of the heart points inward, making you bigger and greater than you ought to be. When you have a desire to be that which you were not created to be. This happened in the garden. The garden of Eden, right? Or garden of Gethsemane, excuse me. The the Satan comes to Eve, and what he tempts her with is to live into a reality and, and, and and a circumstance where she is going to become greater than she ought to be. He says, eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be like God. You will know the things of God. We were not created to know the things of God because we were not God. Pride is the sin in self-absorption, in self-importance, points us, leads us, forces us to desire to be that, to be more than we were created to be. The sin of pride is manifested when we think we cannot be wrong when we become condescending and rude to others, when we boast or seek attention, it's an over-concern with appearances. It's being consumed with our own agenda. It's assuming what we have taken has not been given. So it's just the swelling of self. I, me, for myself. And, And when that happens, when we are prideful, it leads to a couple things. One, it leads to arrogance. And this is the simple one, right? We know this. Prideful people are consumed with self. We know this is easy to understand. It's in Steve's definition. Um, Me and my wife are celebrating 13 years of marriage in eight days. I'm super pumped about it. Thank you. I'm I'm excited, ecstatic. On our honeymoon, we were in Mexico, and the place that we were staying had a mini golf course. Like I said, I really enjoy golf. And so I was like, hey, we should go. Let's go mini golfing. It'll be fun. We, she is, she, my wife is a dermatology PA, so the sun is the devil to her um, to some degree. And so anything we could do that could get us into some shade and not be in the sun all the time, she's, she's super for. Uh, and so I was like, we went mini golfing, and it was awesome, and we started. And because I'm such a great golfer, <laughs> you already know. I don't even have to tell the story. I decided to be really generous and say, man, you know what, babe, I love you. We're, we're four days into marriage. I'm going to give you one stroke a hole to make it fair. Because I, what was coming out was this: what I deceived myself into thinking, I'm just being really nice, trying to make it even, trying to be fair about it. I'm obviously a better golfer than her. She's never golfed in her life. I equated real golf with mini golf. They're so not the same thing. Also, um, mini golf... For me and my wife, like, I learned very quickly it's not about competition, it's about fun. Um, and it's actually become a really cool tradition where anytime we go on vacation, we'll try to find a mini golf course and we have fun, we don't compete. Um, and so I gave her one stroke of hole. so I gave her 18 strokes over these 18 holes of mini golf. She ended up beating me by two, if you don't count the 18 strokes that I gave her. She actually beat me by 20. And it was very humbling. And it was very great. And my arrogance and self-importance and selfishness got in the way of what could have been. It almost ruined our honeymoon because I was so selfish and prideful about it. Like I was so, I still hear about it from time to time, but I want to think I've become more of a humble person. Maybe not. Um, but it's just my, my pride got in the way. We get consumed with ourselves. And so in situations, in any aspect of life, we, we try to create these moments and these, 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 these things, these, these circumstances, where we're kind of controlling not just the narrative, but the outcome. And so for me, it's like, yeah, I wanted to win, but I thought, look, oh, this will be fair. And that's not what it was about. I was just so arrogant and consumed with myself. The second thing that pride leads to is ignorance. Prideful people forget the creator who provides and stay focused on the, possession, on the creation they possess. We forget. Our arrogance, because we're so consumed with self, leads to ignorance, and we forget about the Creator who is good. Paul James says, Every good and perfect gift is what is from above. And we stay focused in our ignorance on the things that we have, on the circumstances we're in, on the things that we can control. Tim Keller, who is a pastor who just passed away recently, says that pride fails to look upward. It refuses to let God take his proper role in our life. We want to be our own saviors and lords. This is what Nebuchadnezzar thought he was. We want to run our own life, earn our own self-worth, decide what's right and wrong, and be noticed for it. The sin of pride has that lingering effect of wanting others to notice us and hold us in high regard because that is how we hold ourselves. It may be that we do the right things, but we want to be known for it. And not just known, but seen, not even just as the one who's done the right thing or has the right thing or or whatever, but as the creator even, to a degree. As we put ourselves in the position of God. That's what pride leads to, which comes into the second point. Second, the king is humbled by God. Verses 31 uh, through 33 says this. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is uh, decreed for you. King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. And his nails like the claws of a bird. So the king is high and mighty. And then we get into this process now where the, where the king is humbled by God. And so he looks over and he says, look at all that I have that I've got gained by my power for my majesty. And as soon as those words left his mouth, God intervenes. The messenger intervenes. The angel intervenes and said, all right, now this is what's going to happen. What was prophesied and foretold to you a year ago from your dream is now coming to fruition. So being humble means ultimately God is gonna put us in it, or we can choose, and I'll get to this in a little bit, we can choose to put ourselves in getting right perspective. And here's what I mean by that: humility is knowing who God is, and it's knowing who you are. Getting right perspective. When we're humble, we have right perspective. When we're being humbled, we're getting into right perspective. We come into situations and moments where God is saying, hey. Or we have to remind ourselves, hey, I'm not God, He is. And this isn't to say by acknowledging the reality that God is who He is, that He is God and we are not, and knowing ourselves, this isn't a form of self-like deprecation. It's not a form of killing ourselves that we are unworthy and unlovable. It's just getting ourselves into a right perspective of recognizing God, you are who you say you are but I am also who you say I am. Uh, Lewis Smedes, who was a Baptist uh, preacher in the South, he died in 2002, says this about pride. Pride in the religious sense is refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself. Pride is turning down God's invitation to be a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator. Independent, reliant on our own resources. Pride is the grand delusion, the fantasy of all fantas- fantasies, the cosmic Put on. So if pride distorts our reality, and if out, reality is we can sit in a spot in a space where God is God and we are who we are, who He declares we are, that's actual reality. Pride is saying it distorts the reality where we have put ourselves in the place of God, where we control every outcome and situation, where we have strength and power to get through anything, where we can overanalyze and overthink every circumstance. I can fix that relationship. I can redeem and restore that person who is unhealthy. And we put ourselves in the place of the creator. When humility says, no, I'm just going to be God who you've declared me to be. I'm going to sit and I'm going to trust. Where does this start? It starts with understanding what Jesus has done for us, who we are in Jesus, and how we fit into his plan. I, I think there's a simple aspect of faith and trust where God just desires for us to sit in the reality of like understanding why we, we were created. And it's to be in relationship with them. You are the creator of the universe. And yet in your graciousness and love, you desire relationship with us. That's right perspective. So all of a sudden, when I run into a situation that brings anxiety or worry, something that I think I can control, but really I know I can't. I go back. And in perspective, I know, okay, God, you are who you say you are. You are mighty and power, fortress, redeemer, and shield. You are provider of all things, protector of all things, and I'm going to trust you. And what I am is not someone who can't do anything, but someone who's going to sit in your presence, abide in your love as a son and daughter, and I'm going to trust you. Humility starts with getting right perspective. And then the next thing humility does is, especially in in certain moments and situations, in humility, we get an opportunity to participate. And in participating, what happens is we are invited by God to trust him by focusing on the simple and surrendering the complicated. And I'll get into this. First part, we are invited by God to trust him. The last three chapters are filled with moments in Daniel where God is intervening in King Nebuchadnezzar's life, inviting him to not just acknowledge that he is God, but to trust him. And he says no to it. Look at just last week. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fire. They come out, not even smelling, not even smelling like fire, protected, And King Nebuchadnezzar almost gets it. He almost understands. And he said, This this the God, their God of of Shadrach, Meshach, and so he goes, There, their God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the most high God. So that declaration sounds awesome. But then what he gets so wrong is the next part is he moves from their God to the God who is most high to other people and not himself. Instead of saying, not only is their God the most high, he is now my God. He says, their God is the most high. And anyone who doesn't follow him is going to get killed. And he just misses it. Right before, and we're going to get into this. Before he gets sent out and having the mind of an animal wandering like an animal. Twelve months before that, and a few verses before this. The vision, the dream, was a moment and opportunity of God inviting him. Hey, acknowledge me. And then twelve months passed and he didn't. We get to participate in humility. We do. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. There are moments all the time where God is inviting us to trust him. All the time. Are we going to do it? Humbly, we'll be able to say yes. Pridefully, we say, no, I can handle it. Uh, This last week, something crazy happened to me. I was uh, working, obviously, (laughs) Um, kind of on the message and on some other things, I, I as, as the multiplication and networking pastor, I oversee our two network churches. And what that means, we have one in Aberdeen and one in Watertown, is I get to walk alongside the pastor and just the way that God has blessed and called this church, uh, the way that you guys have participated in Grace Point, we are able to be a resource church for other churches. We are able to use what God has given us to be able to bless other churches so that they can do what God has asked them to do to help people know Jesus. And I get to be a part of walking alongside the pastors in Watertown, Aberdeen, and help them do it. And it's awesome. Until one of the pastors gets called somewhere else and I have to figure out how to find another pastor for Watertown. And that's where we're at right now. And it's good. It's good. Because it's moments where God is inviting me right now to not have to control a situation to find the perfect pastor that's going to lead the people in Watertown, but to trust him and say, hey, I've raised someone up before and I'll do it again. Pastor Steve and Aaron have been incredible at encouraging me and helping me not try to be overwhelmed and anxious about this. Because for me, it's not just finding someone for a position. It's finding a shepherd to help point people to Jesus with a community in Watertown that I love. I'm up there at least once a month. I know them. So I feel this burden that's not my burden. And so instead of... Focusing on the simple in this situation and surrendering the complicated, what, what focusing on the simple would be is to do what Pastor Aaron and Steve do really, really well. What they're encouraging me to do is to sit and say, we know, God, that you've continued to raise up people to, to be in positions that people would get to know you, Jesus. You've done it with Jeff. You're going to do it again. That's what we're going to pray. It doesn't mean we're not diligent and intentional when we get resumes and read them through, but keeping it simple would just be, God, help us be faithful with who you're raising up to put in a place that you control. Making it complicated, which apparently I've been doing the last month and a half, and I'll tell you why, is I'll go through every resume and try to find the perfect characteristics and personality and gifting that I think are going to fit perfectly with the the community of Watertown and who they are and the church that's there, and I overcomplicate it. And in my pride and selfishness, what I'm doing in that is I'm saying, I can find the right person perfectly that's going to fit there so you can do, God, what you're... I'm telling God what he's going to do based off the person I pick. That's making things... Com- we do this in our relationships. We do this in work. We do this to ourselves. And because I wasn't recognizing that was happening, because I was still praying, God, raise up. But I didn't surrender the complicated. What happened is on Wednesday and Thursday, I had to be in bed for a day and a half because I was overwhelming my mental capacity and thinking about it so much thinking about what I thought I could control that I couldn't, that God literally, like, hit, forced me to hit a brick wall, that I had to stop, slow down, take a nap, sleep, so that I couldn't think about it anymore. And I, and I woke up Thursday, I was in bed, and I woke up, and it was like, I was trying to, I'm, I also like to process and think that every, we can learn something from everything. Maybe not, but like, that's how my mind works. And so on Friday, I meet with my accountability partner and and, and one of my best friends, and we talk about life, and I I leave his house, and after just talking about the situation, I get this clarity of, man, I was just working so hard and focusing on the complicated of trying to find the right person. God forced me into a situation where I had to slow down, stop, and trust. I feel better, but if I don't continue to surrender the complicated things of life and circumstances and focus on the simple of just praying and trusting God, I'm going to get to that spot again. And God will be gracious and humble me again, because that's what he does. Not, it's discipline, but it's good. Because it's for my good to help me become more like Jesus, and for his glory. We've run into this stuff all the time. So, man, how did this happen with King Nebuchadnezzar? In verse 16, the dream and vision said, the angel and the messenger said, you're going to get a mind of an animal. And the animal that God decided to give uh, the mind of King to, to King Nebuchadnezzar was that of an ox. Now, I don't know what you guys know or don't know about ox. Oxen. I feel like me and this cat would be like really good friends. Carefree. My tongue's probably out more than I want it to be. Shaggy red hair. Just like we, we would get along. But oxen. I said oxes last service. And my wife came and said, that's not the right grammar. I was like, thanks, babe. Oxen, when they're not like trapped, are diligent, dependable creatures. They're patient. They can be stubborn, but who can be? But the thing they are most is they're grazers. As I was reading the scripture, I thought, okay, you gave him an animal. I'm I'm starting to think through. There's a reason you gave him the mind of an ox, not a bear or a lion who could go find their own food, who can protect themselves, an ox. Who as a grazer had to go where the food was without even thinking about it, had to trust the provider to provide the things and very simple needs of life. To survive, where the water is, I'm going to go and just, I'm going to walk and without, again, animals don't do this, but I'm going to trust that where I go, I'm going to go where the grass, grass is growing. I'm going to be led and drink where the water's at. Without thinking about it, they're trusting in the creator to provide for them. God had to put King Nebuchadnezzar into a space and place where he had to trust without even thinking about it. Again, he had many opportunity to say yes to the invitation, to trust him and to acknowledge him. But in not doing it, God humbles him and gives him the mind of an ox that immediately we can think, oh, humiliating, terrible, but gets him into a position To have to trust, to have to just trust and rely on the provider for the basic needs of life. And then the next thing happens is that the king honors God. God is honored by the king. He says, I'm grazing as a wild animal. And when the time passes, which some argue the seven times passing is seven years, other theologians argue it's not that long. But enough time had passed where all of a sudden King Nebuchadnezzar looked up to the heavens and his sanity was restored. This idea of honoring God, of getting back to a place of humility, has to start with our eyes up towards heaven, not in towards ourselves. And so he looks up, sanity restored. And here's what he says He says, At the end of the time, I raised my eye toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. says his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And he says, at the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And in that verse, it's not Nebuchadnezzar saying, look what I have done, look what is mine. He's saying this is the reality and circumstance what happened because the next verse he says this. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, not you guys should, not look who their God is. Now I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He honors him. He was put in a position, yes, of humiliation, but humbled to have to trust God for the basic needs of life. And when he looked towards heaven and started to fix his eyes on the creator of all things, of the universe, on the ultimate provider and protector, the one who has all the power and glory and might, sanity was restored. And he was able to say, I praise God. So as the team comes up, we're going we're gonna to finish with a with this worship song. Um, three simple things right here. Honoring, here's where honoring starts with. One, we got to acknowledge that God rules. Very simple. Just simple intellectual acknowledging, and sometimes it's enough to do just what King Nebuchadnezzar did and raise our eyes to heaven. When was the last time you just raised your eyes to heaven? Acknowledging that he rules in whatever circumstance, situation you're in. It's the laying down of our arrogance and the remedying of our ignorance. Acknowledging the one who is the most high, who has all the power and glory, who is ultimate protector and provider. Second thing we do in honoring God is is we recognize that in everything, in every circumstance, in everything that He does, He is right, and it's not just a moral right or wrong. It's a reality and a recognition that what He does, that exactly what King never said. His dominion is over all. His ways are right. How He thinks is right. It's 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 Isaiah, Jeremiah. Um, uh, his ways are not way, His ways. Thoughts are not our thoughts. It's the reality of getting to a moment where not just what you do is right and just, it's good. Pastor Steve last week talked about this reality. Whether going through success or trial, to acknowledge God in those things is to recognize that if, if I'm going through something good or bad, everything that happens, for those who are called, love him and are called according to his purpose, are for our good and his glory. And everything he does, even if we don't understand it, even when we're wrestling with the question why, even if we want to know what the outcome is supposed to be or should be, or when it's going to come, When's this trial going to be done? When's the temptation going to cease? It's not bad to ask why those things are happening. What God desires is that in everything. Hey, he's good, he is for you, and he is just. And then finally, we need to renounce our sins. A part of the invitation that King Nebuchadnezzar received when he received the interpretation from Daniel is Daniel said, I'll invite you to do this in verse 27. He said, I want you to do what is right by renouncing your sins. Honoring God also means renouncing our sins. And to renounce our sins is to be able to humbly say, I was wrong. The prideful cannot say that. They cannot say, I was wrong. They cannot say, I have failed. They cannot say, I have sinned against you. The humble are able to say, I was wrong. And the humble in Christ know, in admitting we are wrong, we have received forgiveness for our sins from Jesus because of his life, death, and resurrection. So I'm going to have you guys stand. As we stand, and you can look at your bulletin. There's two reflection questions I want you to think through this week and go through those. One, what in life are you not acknowledging God for? Two, where do you need to accept the invitation from God to trust him in the simple and surrender the complicated? As you wrestle with that this week, I'm going to pray God's blessing over you. But this is a prayer I'm going to read from a man named Scotty Smith who's a pastor down in Tennessee. And he uh, has written a book called Everyday Prayers. And he goes through scripture and just writes these prayers are from his own personal perspective, but some of them just hit my soul really well. And this one is from the verses or out of the verses of Daniel 4, verses 34 through 37, where King Nebuchadnezzar says, I praise and exalt the most high God. Let's pray together. King Jesus, once again, I find myself needing a vision of your sovereignty and your goodness. There are two places of insanity or crazy I tend to fall into sometimes like king nebuchadnezzar i arrogantly think i'm in control i disregard you and act like a uh, like a sovereign over a little fiefdom called self if i'm successful i take the credit if i'm not i blame others and usually find a way to get what i want anyway after all i am the point other times i act like the consummate orphan i get afraid and panicky and i blame you for not answering my prayers the way you're supposed to I fall into a navel-gazing negativity, and I trust the national news media more than I trust the good news of the gospel. Have mercy on me, King Jesus. Indeed, help me to live more of my hours, days, weeks, and months in gospel sanity. For it is your kingdom that endures from generation to generation. There has never been a time when you were not king of kings and lord of lords. You're not a cheerleader just pulling for us from afar. You're not a coach just just telling us what to do. You're the king of glory, beauty, compassion, mercy, and grace. You are the king who died for us, was raised for us, is praying for us, and is returning to us. Right now you are working all things together after the counsel of your will. Right now you are working in all things for the good of those who love you. And we love you because you first loved us. Right now, you not only have the heart of every king in your hand, you have my heart in your hand. Right now, you do as you please with all the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth and with me. Right now, everything you do is right and just. Right now, you are the king who has made us your beloved bride. Right now, it is so awesome and comforting to be yours. An object of your affection and a subject in your kingdom. We pray in your unrivaled name the name which every knee will bow and tongue confess the name of Jesus. Amen.